I sometimes read uh, public domain books here on Leaves of Glen. And they were written a long time ago, uh, so they're usually uh, racist or sexist or bigoted. Uh, But in there somewhere and all that is a, a story, and that's why those stories are famous. Other times, I read... Uh, works from independent authors, and they're delightfully not racist, but they might have adult language or adult situations. So that's your warning, uh, but I'm sure you uh, are grown up enough to handle it. Don't write to me complaining. Juxtapositions might be my theme for this week. Uh, When I was a kid living in a small town, just outside of Minneapolis, I would uh, go to the grocery store as a teenager to go buy candy. It was near the library, so I could just walk down to it. Go there, get Hershey bars or whatever else I wanted, turn around and go back home and sit around and probably get high. Then, in those days, I would hear they'd play music from the 80s, because it's the 1990s, yeah, there's annoying music, and I'd walk up and down and, and laugh at how stupid uh, songs they picked out from uh, WLTE, soft, easy-listening music. Uh, they had commercials with Terry Garr uh, promoting it because she was dating one of the people that owned the radio station. Uh, none of this is the point. The point is I would go there with my fat pants and pumas and my big sweater with stripes and a floppy hat and super cool sunglasses because I was... The coolest thing in the 1990s. I go there, get my candy, walk back home, listening to, you know, grunge music on my Walkman. And, uh, and that was kind of how I associated with that, with that grocery store. Nowadays, with Target being as scary as it is, and yes, I talk about this in every episode, it's terrifying there. They got the stickers on the ground. We got to stand away from each other. Uh, They only let so many people in at a time, uh, as if that's going to stop all the virus from floating around through the air. doesn't matter if you got 20 or 100 people. It's still floating around. Uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to go back to the grocery store in my old town, and that should be less scary. Well, it's more scary. Because everyone in my old town is senior citizens. Uh, They all have masks and gloves, and they all wear hoodies with the hoods up to protect their faces. And they're all on their phones, shouting at their spouses about what the hell else are they supposed to pick up, and what the hell aisle is that supposed to be in. And uh, they have tape, painter's tape, blue tape, on the ground with little arrows, directing you which way to go up and down the aisles till you get to the last aisle and you go to the checkout. And at the checkout, they have X's, telling you where to stand. And they have little plastic screens up to protect you uh, from sneezing on the uh, person behind the counter. Uh, The X's are haphazardly thrown down. Uh, They're not six feet away from each other. It's like one's one foot. The other one's like three feet. They're just kind of thrown all over the place. They clearly had a 17-year-old put big painting tape X's on the ground. And the arrows, nobody follows the arrows. supposed to stop cross traffic, but they do it anyways. I was getting a DiGiorno pizza from the freezer aisle, and some guy came up from the wrong way and uh, just walked right up to me with his gloves and his mask and almost touched my hand, reaching for a similar box of pizza. And as I stood in the checkout lane, Green Days, When I Come Around, played on the little speaker, and I thought to myself, this was a song that played 
Back when I was in high school, and I used to come down here in my fat pants and pumas, and buying my chocolate. And now here I am as a puffy, middle-aged, slightly overweight, with beer tits, gray hairs, uh, standing in line, fearing for my life. And that's where I got the idea that, boy, things have really changed. And don't ever go back to the grocery store in the town you grew up in. Let's learn about the author for this week's story. Kurt Vonnegut. He's an author everyone's heard of. He's a pretty famous, uh, pretty whimsical man. Um... I could dive into the Wikipedia uh, article about him, basically to say that he was an American writer in a career spanning over 50 years. Uh, Vonnegut published 14 novels, three short story collections, five plays, and five works of nonfiction, with further collections being published after his death. He's most famous for his darkly satirical best-selling novel, Slaughterhouse-Five. And that's kind of where I'm going to leave it. Uh, his entry here in Wikipedia is long, because he was a prolific writer and an important person. But uh, what I know about him is Slaughterhouse-Five that I read when I was in high school. I remember it uh, blowing my mind because it starts out uh, very much about uh, World War II and then it uh, kind of spirals off into uh, aliens abducting him when he's older and forcing him to live in captivity with a beautiful woman. And it goes back and forth and back and forth, kind of going over his life and his past and then leading up to this time now with the, uh, the aliens watching over him and making him breed and everything. And uh, I thought it was really interesting because you didn't know if the narrator was reliable and you didn't know if uh, it was actually really happening or not, and he's traveling through time back and forth, and everything is very interesting and very well done. So, lucky for me, he has stuff that he wrote when he was 12 or something for some pulp magazine, and uh, it's public domain now, so we get to read it. The story is called 2BRO2B, published in 1962. Everything was perfectly swell. There were no prisons, no slums, no insane asylums, no uh, cripples, no poverty, no wars. All diseases were conquered. So was old age. Uh, death, barring accidents, was an adventure for uh, volunteers. The population of the United States was stabilized at 40 million souls, one bright morning in the Chicago lying in hospital, a man named Edward K. Welding Jr. waited for his wife to give birth. He was the only man waiting. Not many people were born a day anymore. Welling was 56, a mere stripling of a population whose average age was 129. X-rays had revealed that his wife was going to have triplets. The children would be his first. Young Welling was hunched in his chair, his head in his hand. He was so rumpled, so still and colorless as to be virtually invisible. His camouflage was perfect, since the waiting room had a disorderly and demoralized air, too. 
Chairs and ashtrays had been moved away from the walls. The floor was paved with spattered drop cloths. The room was being de- uh, redecorated. Yeah, it was being redecorated as a memorial to a man who had volunteered to die. A sardonic old man, about 200 years old, sat on a stepladder, painting a mural that he did not like. Back in the days when people aged visibly, his age would have been guessed at uh, uh, 35 or so. Aging had touched him that much before the cure of aging was found. The mural he was working on depicted a very uh, neat garden. Huh? Men and women in white, doctors and nurses, turned the soil, planted seedlings, sprayed bugs, and spread fertilizer. Men and women in purple uniforms pulled up weeds and cut down plants that were uh, old and sickly, rake leaves, and carried uh, refuse to trash burners. Never, 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 not even in medieval Holland nor old Japan had a garden been more formal than better tended. Every plant had all the loam, light water, air, and nourishment it could use. A hospital orderly came down the corridor singing under his breath a popular song. If you don't like my kisses, honey, here's what I will do. I'll go see a girl in purple kiss the sad world toodly-doo. If you don't want my loving, well, why should I take up all this space? I'll get off this old planet and let some sweet baby have my place. The orderly looked in at the mural and the muralist. It looks so real, he said. I can practically uh, imagine him standing in the middle of it. It makes you think you're not in it, said the painter. He gave a satiric smile. Yeah, it's called the happy garden of life, you know. Oh, that's good of Dr. Hitz, said the orderly. He's referring to one of the male figures in white, whose head was a portrait of Dr. Benjamin Hitz, the hospital's chief obstetrician. Hitz uh, was a blindingly, blindingly handsome man. A lot of faces uh, fell in, said the orderly. He meant the faces of many of the figures in the mural were still blank. All blanks were to be filled with portraits of important people on either the hospital staff or from the Chicago office of the Federal Bureau of Termination. Must be nice uh, to be able to make pictures that look like something, said the orderly. The painter's face curled with uh, scorn. Hey, you think I'm proud of this daub, he said. You think this is my idea of what life really looks like? Yeah, well, what's your idea of life look like? said the orderly. The painter gestured at a foul drop cloth. There's a good picture of it, he said. Frame that. You have a picture of a damn sight more honest than this one. Hey, you're a gloomy old duck, aren't you? said the orderly. Yeah, is that a crime? said the painter. Yeah, the orderly shrugged. If you don't like it here, Grandpa, he said, and he finished the thought with a trick telephone number that people who didn't want to live anymore were supposed to call. A zero on the telephone number was pronounced not. The number was 2BR02B. 2BR not to be. Oh, I get it. I get it. It was a telephone number of an institution whose fanciful subquets included Automat, Birdland, Cannery, Catbox, Delouser, Easy Go, Goodbye Mother, Happy Hooligan, Kiss Me Quick, uh, Lucky Pierre, Sheep Dip, Warring Blender, Weep No More, and Worry Why. To be or not to be was the telephone number of the municipal gas chambers of the Federal Bureau of Termination. The painter eh, thumbed his nose at the orderly. When I decide it's time to go, he said, it won't be at the sheep dip. A do-it-yourselfer, eh? said the orderly. Messy business, Grandpa. Why don't you have a little consideration for the people who have to clean up after you? 
The painter expressed with an obscenity his lack of concern for the tribulations of his survivors. The world could do with a good deal more mess, if you ask me, he said. They orderly laughed and moved on. Wailing, the waiting father mumbled something without raising his head. Then he fell silent again. A coarse, formidable woman strode into the waiting room on spike heels. Her shoes, stockings, trench coat, bag, and overseas caps were all purple. The purple the painter called the color of grapes on Judgment Day. The medallion on her purple musset bag was the seal of the service division of the Federal Bureau of Termination, an eagle perched on a turnstile. The woman had a lot of facial hair, an unmistakable mustache, in fact. A curious thing about gas chamber hostesses was that no matter how lovely and feminine they were when recruited, they uh, all sprouted mustaches within five years or so. Is this where I'm supposed to come? She said to the painter. A lot would depend on what your business was, he said. You aren't about to have a baby, are you? They told me I was supposed to pose for some picture, she said. My name's Laura Duncan, she waited. And you dunk people, he said. What? She said. Skip it, he said. That sure is a beautiful picture, she said. Looks just like heaven or something. Or something, said the painter. He took a list of names from his smock pocket. Uh, Duncan, 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 he said, scanning the list. Ah, uh, yes, here you are. You're entitled to be an oralized. See any faceless body here you'd like me to stick your head on? You got a few choice ones left. She studied the mirror obliquely. Gee, she said. They're all about the same to me. I don't know anything about art. A body's a body, eh? He said, all right. As a master of fine art, I recommend this body here. He indicated the faceless figure of a woman who was carrying dried stalks uh, to a trash burner. Well, said Lord Duncan, that's more the disposal people, isn't it? I mean, I'm in a service. I don't do any disposing. The painter clapped his hands in mock delight. Hey, you say you don't know anything about art, and then you prove in the next breath that you know more than about it than I do. Of course, the sheave carrier is wrong for a hostess, a snipper, a pruner, that's more your line. He pointed to a figure in purple who was sawing a dead branch from an apple tree. How about her? Yeah, he said. You, you like her at all? Gosh, she said, and then she blushed and, and became humble. That puts you right next to a uh, Dr. Hitz. That upsets you, he said. Oh, good gravy. No, she said. It's just such a, an honor. Ah, you admire him, eh? He said. Who doesn't admire him? She said, worshipping the portrait of Hitz. It was the portrait of a tanned, white-haired, omnipotent Zeus. Two hundred and forty years old. Oh, who doesn't admire him? She said again. He was responsible for setting up the very first gas chamber in Chicago. Nothing would please me more, said the painter, than to put you next to him for all time, sawing off a limb. Eh, it strikes you as appropriate? That is kind of like what I do, she said. She was demure about what she did. She, what she did was make people comfortable while she killed them. While Laura Duncan was posing for her portrait into the waiting room, bounded Dr. Hitz himself. He was seven feet tall, and he boomed with importance, accomplishments, and the joy of living. Well, Miss Duncan, Miss Duncan, he said, and he made a joke. What are you doing here, he said. 
This isn't where the people leave. This is where they come in. <laughs> We're going to be in the same picture together, she says shyly. Oh, good, said Dr. Hits heartily. And say, isn't that some picture? I'm sure I'm honored to be in it with you, she said. Now, let me tell you, he said, I'm honored to be in it with you. Without women like you, this wonderful world we've got wouldn't be possible. Huh? He saluted her and moved toward the door that led to the delivery rooms. Guess what was just born, he said. I can't, she said. Triplets, he said. Triplets, she said. She was exclaiming over the legal implications of triplets. The law said that no newborn child could survive unless the parents of the child could find someone who would volunteer to die. Triplets, if they were all to live, called for three volunteers. Do the parents have three volunteers? said Lord Duncan. Last I heard, said Dr. Hitz, they had one. And they were trying to scrape another two up. I don't think they made it, she said. Nobody made three appointments with us. Nothing but singles going through today. Unless somebody called in after I left. Eh, what's the name? Wailing, said the father, uh, the waiting father, sitting up uh, red-eyed and frowsy. Edward K. Wailing Jr. is the name of the happy father-to-be. He raised his right hand, looked at a spot on the wall, and gave a hoarsely wretched chuckle. Present, he said. Oh, Mr. Wailing, said Dr. Hitz, I didn't see you. Yeah, the invisible man, said Wailing. They just phoned me that your triplets have been born, said Dr. Hitz. They're all fine, and so is the mother. I'm on my way to see him now. Hooray, said Wailing, emptily. You don't sound very happy, said Dr. Hitz. What man in my shoes would be happy? Said Whaley. He gestured with his hands to symbolize the carefree simplicity. All I have to do is pick out which one of the triplets is going to live uh, and then deliver my maternal grandfather to be a happy hooligan to come back here with a receipt. Dr. Hitz came, became rather severe with Whaley, towered over him. You don't believe in population control, Mr. Whaley, he said. I think it's perfectly keen, said Whaley tautily. Would you like to go back to the good old days when the population of the Earth was 20 billion, about to become 40 billion, then 80 billion, then 160 billion? Do you know what a druplet is, Mr. Whaling? said Hitz. Uh, nope, said Mr. Whaling sulkily. A druplet, Mr. Whaling, is one of the little knobs, uh, one of the little pulpy grains of a blackberry, said Dr. Hitz. Without population control, human beings would now be packed on the surface of this old planet like droplets on a blackberry. Eh, think of it. Whaling continued to stare at the same spot on the wall. In the year 2000, said Dr. Hitz, before scientists stepped in and laid down the law, there wasn't enough drinking water to go around and nothing to eat but seaweed. And still people insisted on their right to reproduce like jackrabbits. And they're right, if possible, to live forever. I want those kids, said Whaling quietly. I want all three of them. Oh, of course you do, said Dr. Hitz. It's only human. I don't want my grandfather to die either, said Dr. Whaling. Mr. Whaling. <laughs> Nobody's really happy about taking a close relative to the cat box, said Dr. Hitz, gently, sympathetically. I wish people wouldn't call it that, said Leora Duncan. Yeah, what? said Dr. Hitz. I wish people wouldn't call it the, the cat box and things like that, she said. It gives people the wrong impression. Oh, you're absolutely right, said Dr. Hitz. Yeah, forgive me. 
He corrected himself, gave the municipal gas chambers their official title, and a title no one ever used in conversation. I should have said Ethical Suicide Studios, he said. That sounds so much better, said uh, Leonora Duncan. This child of yours, whichever one you decide to keep, Mr. Whaling, said Dr. Hitz, he or she is going to live on a happy, roomy, clean, rich planet, thanks to population control. In a garden, like that mural there, he shook his head. Two centuries ago, when I was a young man, that was hell that nobody thought could last another 20 years. Now centuries of peace and plenty stretch before us as the imagination cares of travel, he smiled luminously. The smile faded as he saw that Wailing had just drawn a revolver. Wailing shot Dr. Hitz dead. There's no room for one, a great big one, he said. Then he shot Dr. Leora Duncan. It's only death, he said to her as she fell. There, room for two. And then he shot himself, making room for all three of his children. Nobody came running. Nobody seemingly heard the shots. The painter sat on the top of his stepladder, looking down reflectively on the sorry scene. The painter pondered the mournful puzzle of life demanding to be born and once born demanding to be fruitful, to multiply and to live as long as possible. To do all that on a very small planet that would have to last forever. All the answers that the painter could think of were grim. Even grimmer, surely, than a cat box, a happy hooligan, an easy go. He thought of war. He thought about plague. He thought of starvation. He knew he would never paint again. He let his paintbrush fall to the dropcloths below, and then he decided that he had about enough of life in the happy garden of life, too. He came slowly down from the ladder. He took Wailing's pistol, really intending to shoot himself, but he didn't have the nerve. And then he saw the telephone booth in the corner of the room. He went to it and dialed the well-remembered number. To be or not to be. Federal Bureau of Termination, said the very warm voice of a hostess. How could I, uh, how soon could I get an appointment? He asked, speaking very carefully. We could probably fit you in uh, late this afternoon, sir, she said. It might even be earlier if we get a cancellation. All right, said the painter. Fit me in, if you please. He gave her his name, spelling it out. Thank you, sir, said the hostess. Your city thanks you, your country thanks you, your planet thanks you. But the deepest thanks of all is from future generations. Well, what did we learn this week? Uh, We learned... About sacrifice. I have no idea how to tie this into my previous story about grocery shopping. Every episode is about grocery shopping. Like I said before, there's nothing else for me to talk about. So I'm stuck. Uh, These intros and outros completely blow, because I just keep talking about the same thing all the time. I could talk about my cat, my brand new cat, which she used to think was adorable. But now I don't think he's adorable anymore. I'm home all the time, and I hate him. At first, I'd walk up the stairs, and I'd see him sitting there, and I'd think, ah, ah, look at your cute little face. What are you, shy? And then I'd go to the bathroom with the door open, and I'd see him staring at me. And at first, I thought, ah, isn't he adorable? 
But as the weeks have gone on and I'm home all the time, I sit on my toilet and I look out my bathroom door and I see him there, looking at me from the hallway, his little paws sitting on the floor, staring at me. And I think to myself, the hell are you staring at? Why don't you go someplace else? You should be happy I gave you a house to live in. You were homeless before. And I see his little face, which he used to think was cute, and now I hate it. I don't know how to tie that in with sacrifice. I'm grasping at straws here. I have no life anymore. I don't go anywhere. I don't do anything. I mean, I could keep talking about my cat, I suppose. It, oh, my dad uh, listens to his show, which is nice. It's flattering. He's been listening for a few months now. He enjoys the the these episodes. He also enjoys the ones I do with Ben. Uh, he told me they has to stop listening to the news at a certain time of day because he's got to calm down. And I get that. When you pay close attention to the news, as I also do, you get pretty frustrated. Just over and over again, watching people do things that are against their own best interest. Over and over. It drives you crazy. You get so frustrated. So he decided he wants to spend uh, his evenings listening to podcasts and audiobooks and stuff just to kind of relax and get whisked away into the world of fantasy. And, uh, and I appreciate that. I think it's adorable. I also am very flattered. Uh, he got me started on this whole thing. Uh, thanks to him getting me into old radio shows from the 1940s as a kid, listening to Fib McGee and Molly and Great Gildersleeve and The Shadow and Suspense and all sorts of shows. Uh, and even in the 1970s, there was a resurgence of these shows. So Hyman Brown, who used to produce these shows in the 1940s, He's a, oh, everyone's into these shows again. So he made a new show in the 70s called Radio Mystery Theater, which I still listen to. Uh, I found podcasts of it to download. And uh, and so I just grew up hearing all these audiobooks and radio shows and that sort of thing. He even read to me a book called Flat Tail, a story about a beaver. It was written in like 1910 or 1920. Yeah, just a story about a beaver. Just walking around doing his stuff, chopping down trees with his teeth. No real drama, no real conflict. There definitely wasn't a love interest. It was just a beaver. But I used to think beavers were cool when I was a kid. They got a house. It's half in the water. The front door is underwater. They have to swim, swim into their door to go up and snuggle their family. The point is, he's listening to this podcast, which basically he created. And uh, it dawned on me as I was reading today's story... I always just kind of assumed he's read Kurt Vonnegut. I don't know why. He's a pretty well-read guy. But now that I'm thinking about it, I've dug through all his stuff during the summer times and winter breaks when the parents weren't around and I was left alone in the house. I even found his porn that he kept up in the upper shelf in the closet. Uh, never did I see a single copy of Kurt Vonnegut anywhere. He had Garrison Keillor. He had a giant book of Mark Twain with Mark Twain's big old face on it. Kurt Vonnegut, no. So since I can't think of anything intelligent to say for the end of this episode, I'll just use this as a way to see if my dad is really listening. Acknowledge the porn that was in the closet. Oh, it was in a big binder. You think I didn't see that? And also prove to me that you ever read Kurt Vonnegut. For the rest of you... Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week.